Welcome to Empower Half an Hour, a mental health podcast that brings firsthand interviews and testimonies to you. Welcome to Empower Half an Hour. I'm your host, Brandon Spatz. Today's guest is Steve Tretchler. Steve is a member of the Miracle Clubhouse in Dayton, Ohio. He's been a member since 2020. Miracle Clubhouse is a part of a worldwide organization known as Clubhouse International. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks, Brandon. Thank you for being here. All right, everyone, let's get started with today's interview. What is your mental health background? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, my uh, mental health background goes all the way back to the time when I was about six years old. Um, now, I currently am diagnosed with um, childhood PTSD, borderline personality disorder, bipolar 2, uh, childhood PTSD, um, and a lot of anxiety um, disorder. It's general anxiety disorder is what it's called, or GAD. Um, and when I was young, <clears throat> as a young boy, I was very emotionally disturbed, and uh, I wasn't socialized very well, and uh, was growing up in very young um, as the firstborn of three boys in a very emotionally, mentally, physically, uh, spiritually even um, abusive home um, by both parents. And um, I think I just became very uh, disoriented, um, or not disoriented, that, that came later, but I became disconnected. And um, I wasn't able to get what needs that I needed to get that. Um, and then I don't think that they were even willing to, even if they could have met my needs. Um, but that abuse um, played a big role in me becoming um, a very young boy that was, um, I would I would say that I was very good-natured and a kind child, um, I would have said that I was a good little boy. Um, and I had good thoughts and I had good feelings, but I, they, they seemed to die. It seemed like the little boy in me was dying. And there was a very angry and disturbed little boy that was just completely um, separated from his real thoughts and feelings and emotions. And... Uh, had to pretty much mask deception um, deceptively uh, what he wasn't feeling as though he was. So it sounds like there was a lot of confusion on just who you are as as um, a child and the trauma and uh, abuse just really um, made it hard to to allow yourself to feel what you needed to feel. 
How did that progress uh, over the, the early childhood years? Well, what you said is correct. And um, one of the things that was really confusing for me is that I had um, a great um, paternal grandmother that was very, very nurturing and very loving. I even had thoughts of hurting her as a child. And then the love that I knew she had for me, she never treated me or talked to me or or touched me the way that the other adults did. So I knew I couldn't do that. It was very, very young. I I questioned her authenticity um, and whether or not she was actually real, even at times. But um, I went with it, so to speak, because she was the only thing that I knew to trust. And 18 months after I was born, my middle brother was born. And I loved this little baby because it was new and he was beautiful and and things like that. But even so, at probably about the age of, um, I would say I was probably about four, maybe going going into five. I was already having fights, picking up, picking on little kids in the neighborhood that were my age, um, some even older. But my little baby brother, um, I. I was I started hitting and I started pushing and I pushed him off the couch and I I was being abusive and I was taking I remember my rage at that age used to get really really it just got really elevated very very quickly and I remember hitting my little brother and I knew I loved him I knew that I had wonderful feelings and I loved him I even loved looking at him because he was just a beautiful little brother but I did not know how to interact with him, and I knew that um, I was I was just angry. I think all the time, frustrated, um, and I think that I acted out on him the way that I knew um, that I felt, and the way that people had treated me. Sounds like a lot of learned behaviors from years of uh, abuse could have come over in. Um progressed on to others. Um, did your relationship get better over the years as you, uh, both your brother and you grew older? It did to an extent. Um, uh, and at, at the age of eight, um, my mom had her third boy, our baby brother. And um, I would say that the behavior with my brother that was 18 months younger than I, I remember he liked me. He wanted a big brother. He wanted to play with me. He wanted me to play with him. I could tell that he wanted um, a relationship there. And I didn't. I wanted to stop his fun. I wanted to take his toys. I wanted to break his things. And I would say that it, accelerated more than anything and when our when our uh, baby brother was born I remember having lo looking at him like I did um, second born um, I loved him as a little boy I loved him as a baby I, I loved babies I thought I thought he was beautiful and I was afraid of him because I remember acting out on my middle brother, I remember hitting him. A little baby, you know, you think they're, they're so 
um, as I was, that every every baby is, um, they're formable. And I remember hitting that baby in the head, my middle brother, on the soft spot. And why did I do that? Because mom said, be careful of his soft spot. Um, I was terrified that I was going to treat my baby brother um, just as bad as I did the middle brother and or worse. Um, I was uh, to be to be eight years old by that time when the third was born and to have death on the mind to have wanted to die myself at that by that time at that age um or even wanted to see a brother die um and see what it was like to have something die and then i started acting out um outside and hurting neighbor animals hurting i i remember killing some birds but my my anger my aggression it just intensified it increased and the behaviors increased not not for the better of course with experience all all of the rage that you had growing up uh, was there any one specific thing that really helped you just kind of release like that in the anger in a healthy way the good coping skill or some something that got your mind off things from the time i was very young and I would say five, when there was good behavior on my part, it was because I was putting on a show and I was singing songs and I was trying to get someone to laugh and I was always trying to get my mom to laugh. That was very difficult. Um, I couldn't get my dad to laugh because he wouldn't laugh, not at me or my jokes. And um, there was a character that was um, internationally marketed um, as a television clown, and I really loved this character. And I watched his show every day, and I would mimic his dance, and I would mimic his voice, and I, mimic, I would mimic his, uh, just his, um, I guess his, the camaraderie that he, that he um, extended to the kids on his show that he would have on there playing games and singing songs and doing things. And I really liked that because although it was a fictitious, fictitious character, he was still real to me and he was still kind to me. And I never saw him be anything but that um, to myself and all of his viewing audience. And that's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to be like. And I wanted to look happy and I wanted to sound happy and I wanted to be happy and I wanted others to be happy because of me. And I think that I started, um, I became a jokester. My, my um, little antics, I think they started to become like pleasurable or an extension of that, that clown where I was just trying to make people laugh or I was um, trying to make others happy. Um, and it took me away from my sadness. It took me away from the depression I was in. It took me away from my reality. Um, and I could, I could put on that poker face. I could put on that makeup and I could be that, that 
clown that was dying on the inside but smiling on the outside. And it became an illusion for me. It became um, a deception for me. And um, while I used it in a positive way, um, I, I was still dying on the inside. Um, in fact, I think by the time I was 9 or 10 years old, um, my grandparents even knew that I was a different boy. I was a different person um, than they had known for the last 10 years because that boy Stevie inside had died. And he couldn't have um, done anything other than die because he had been continually killed for 10 years over and over and over again in one way, shape, form, or another. Sounds like you were really struggling with your identity and just knowing who you were as a, per a person at a young age. And um, I think it's amazing that uh, this character has also helped you um, have a kind of a a way of projecting yourself as the positive positive and really funny type of person you are but there's still the fact that you're dying inside but it, it's it's fascinating on how identity uh plays such a role on who we are have you always struggled with your identity from as far back as you could remember i have and I've struggled in many forms or with many facets. Um, I've, I've struggled with being male. I've struggled with my sexuality. I've struggled with um, feelings of both attraction and disgust to both the male and the female form. Um, and I've been extremely confused with what I wanted to do in life. You know, um, people would ask me, teachers would ask me, um, I am talented and I'm, I'm uh, fairly well schooled when it comes to um, music and especially um, voice and studying voice. Um, but what was interesting about that is it, though it became my dream um, to become an entertainer and to sing professionally, um, travel, um, be in the performing arts theater and um, also become a professional clown. I absolutely hated being me. I hated me because I learned to hate me. I learned to hate myself. And I didn't ever learn how to like the good things about me. And that took a long, long time to ever connect with or ever overcome and I still struggle with that sounds like you had a really hard time with just loving yourself as a person and um and beco becoming who you wanted to be um over the years which was uncertain at the time um as you got older um how did the your passion for singing uh play a part in in growing up I was um a fairly, I'll say, religious child. Um, that was to my own doing and to my becoming um, experienced in uh, my faith um, with other children, school-age kids, and a few neighbor kids that were my age and older. 
um, healthy relationships, which were hard relationships, but they were the healthiest in form. And I was able to have um, uh, grow spiritually within the church community that I went to. And with that being said, as far as as far as uh, voice goes, um, I didn't know how to use. I didn't know how to use my voice. Um, I was a young tenor. Um, when my voice changed, it became baritone tenor. Um, but I still had a strong tenor, and um, opportunities came along to sing and to act in concerts. Um, various forms in church and in school, and then also in community theater as well as the drama club in school, um, I was able to de develop myself and um, my comfort zone for where my where my talent was. But when I when I sang, I sounded like Bing Crosby. I, when I sang White Christmas, White Christmas. And when I sang New York, New York, it sounded like Frank Sinatra. And when I sang I've Got to Be Me, I sounded like Sammy Davis Jr. And I was at a very young teenage, as a very young teenager, I was impersonating these renowned, uh, world-renowned um, celebrities. And I was never developing Steve's voice. Um, I knew where it was, but I even hid that because I didn't want that coming out. Um, and so I would do things that were, you know, when you do a, when you do a Broadway musical and you're doing um, the, let's say the um, epitaph, um, which is the first number in Guys and Dolls, I would make myself sound like a gangsta because the gangsta is going to be singing at the, at the uh, racetrack um, rather than Steve. And so it was easy for me, um, and I became actually even better at doing the impersonations that way. But I never, like, I never took care of me. I never, um, they, they call it finding your own chops. And, you know, um, it's like I never found my own chops and I never honed my own craft, so to speak. Um, and I went that way through life uh, for the most part for probably the first 25, 30 years of my life. So for the first 25 years of your life, you really had a hard time finding that self-identity, finding that, that person that you wanted to be. Um, as you started growing up in uh, past 25 into your mid uh, midlife, um, how were things changing? Did, did those um, identity problems um, stay the same? Were they, were they evolving uh, as over time? Some began to evolve and others remained the same. Um, it was about the age of 15 when my mother's father, he had become, as a teenager, he had become my best friend as far as a family member. And um, I only had that relationship for three and a half years before he succumbed to cancer. 
And during that time, he had taught me about cooking. He had talked to me, taught me some cooking. He taught me how to fish. He taught me how to how to clean animals. You know, if, if, if for those of you that are hunters, maybe. Um, and he liked me. He the first time he heard me sing um, in public, I was singing at a Christmas show or a, or a winter concert, and I sang Irving Berlin's White Christmas. And I looked out and I saw this very, very um, old, seasoned, mature, um, very modest, um, but sentimental man. Um, and he was a giant man. He was tall. He was like 6'5". And uh, he was already in his late 70s or I think he was 76 at the time. But I saw this man just sobbing in his handkerchief in this concert. And I was like, Grandpa. And it was a side of him that I had never seen, um, even at my grandmother's funeral. And um, we became best friends for three and a half years. And then he died. And when he died, I was 15. I was just, um, just, just ready to turn 16. And I began drinking and I began using illicit drugs. And quite fast, I increased in the severity of the types of drugs I was using. And then I lost my virginity, and um, I quit music, I quit the choir, I quit drama, I quit, I quit acting, and um, you you could find me hanging on the burnout side of the high school versus uh, in the hallway with my peers that I was in the drama club with or anything like that, and it uh, was the beginning, hard, hard beginning of many years of uh, drug and alcohol abuse, um, sexual dysfunction, as well as overdoses, two overdoses that occurred uh, during that time, um, a failed marriage with three children. And um, I was still struggling with my sexuality at that time. And I didn't know how to get clean. I didn't know how to get clean for the life of me. With all the addiction starting and um, the loss of your your longtime um, coping skill and also joy of, of music, how did that affect you going into the addiction? Um, was it fueling it more and more that you didn't have the your your regular coping skill that you went to, or did you find new uh, new things to help you get through hard times? No, it was a lot of denial. It was a lot of hiding and masking the alcohol use, the drug use, or the drug and alcohol abuse. It takes it takes a lot. Um, and this is where I guess I'll throw this in. Um, Robin Williams was one of my favorite comedians and actors and entertainers all the way around. But he said something really profound before we lost him. And he said, people don't pretend to be mentally ill they pretend to be fine they pretend to be well and that's what I did I can remember one Christmas I was separated from my wife we only had one boy our oldest boy and he was about two going on three and I was over at my mom's and it was Christmas Day, 
everybody, all of the relatives, everybody you can imagine, from the cousins to the aunts and the great aunts and uncles and grandma and grandpa, everybody was there. And at the time, my youngest brother, who was about 12, and uh, my baby brother at that time was, but he was still very much a very young artist and a very, um, a very good kid, a very innocent boy. He was playing with some of his toys at the Christmas tree at the base of the tree, just listening to everybody talk and music playing. And the ladies are in the kitchen getting things ready for dinner. And I'm uh, three sheets to the wind and trying not to be noticed, but everybody's got their eyes on me. And um, I reached in my pockets and was fumbling around and I pulled out my hand and a bag of dope fell on the floor in front of everybody in the family and my little brother looked over at it and he went to reach for it as I picked it up and he says he said what is that and I said well it's something that's really not too good and uh I got my coat and my dad didn't have to say it's time for you to go because he escorted me to the door Sounded like a really hard time and a low point in in the just the process of addiction. Um, did that affect your relationships um, with your family afterwards? Oh yes, and to this day, um, yes, even to this day, I uh, <clears throat> definitely to this day. That's always hard, especially when the trust is broken. But we can always work to rebuild over over our recovery process. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us about some of your turning points um, that started to help you get to the recovery stage that you're in um, current day. Um, well... It definitely started a, a while back, um, but it was um, when I was married to my first wife, and we had three children together, and our third child was a beautiful little girl. When uh, she was born... I didn't want to be a drunk anymore. And I didn't want to be abusive or be that loud, angry man that the boys used to tremble with next to. And I think that's when my little girl, there was something about her that changed my heart. And... It was definitely a turning point, probably the first turning point. It really changed your life, just having that moment and seeing how things change when, when you bring a child into the world. It can change everything. I knew she was precious, as were the boys. But I didn't want her to go through what the boys went through with me because they grew up with daddy yelling and daddy and mom yelling and fighting and daddy 
going on drunks and raging and hitting mom. And I didn't want this little girl to experience any of that because if she had to have a daddy, her daddy needed to love her mom and her brothers. And I think that it was a big turning point at that point. That's a very hard thing to even imagine going through. I could only imagine what it was like for you. With that turning point, what was happening next? What what happened when you started to to realize different things in your situation at the time? I think that was a... <clears throat> I think it was an eye-opening experience for me because we were at that point. We were at that turning point. And... I knew that things had to change if things were going to be different. And so, here comes that attic again. I can do this myself. I'm Superman! And the way I looked at it was like, I don't need a 12-step program. I don't need a therapist to tell me. I don't need to be on a medication because my... Not what they say it is. And, of course, I knew all the answers or had all the answers and everybody else's experience throughout the world and throughout life, <clears throat> they were wrong. So I was kind of like banging my head against sharp shards of glass again. <laughs> and uh, it, uh, deep in it, the it denial. was deep in denial and it wasn't anything that was going to be cleared up quickly or easily because... When you know the truth and you're trying to go around every way that you know possible that you have to uh, face things. Um, in, the, in, in facing things, the first part is getting honest. And when you've lived till you were almost 25 years old, going on 27 years old, I think, at that time... <clears throat> When you've been dishonest for 27 years, you don't you don't change things very easily. It takes time and it's a process. You just got to trust that. It's a process, you're right, but you also have to trust others. And I've never met an addict uh, or an alcoholic that has, um, or anyone that's grown up in abusive homes that wants help from anybody. Um. Not only do you not want to hear that you're wrong, you don't want other people to help you. And you don't want to know that there are people that know better than you that can help you. Oftentimes, I, I feel that mental health disorders and addiction, we get so stuck in our ways. And we just don't want to hear anything other than what. We want to, our mind tells us, and that's a extremely hard process that I could only imagine for addiction, what you had to put yourself through to get to that next level. So as, um, as you started working on your addiction, what were some of um, the points in your life where you, you chose recovery? over your addiction 
Well, I don't, I don't think that I initially did it for me. Um, <laughs> because I didn't like myself or even love myself. I didn't love myself, but I didn't like myself enough to do that for myself. And, but I, but I did other members, um, of my family and, and things were, things were moving along where, uh, in order for things to become healthy because they were unhealthy, um, things had to change, as I said, um, and things had to become healthy. That means things had to change and things had to heal and where things couldn't heal. That's where there were a lot of severed relationships and, um, both in family and in friends throughout my, uh, growing up in school year. And then even as my best man, I had a, um, wonderful friend from the time we were probably in seventh grade and then on past the time we were married. And, um, I lost a great friend, um, the best friend I ever had, and there wasn't anything that this man would have done for me or wouldn't have done for me. And I remember that I was on a run, and uh, this was before I got sober, and I happened to be in the neighborhood, and this is how addiction works, because it's crazy. And... uh it's cunning, baffling, and powerful, but I uh, happened to be there, and I saw, I just happened to be going by his street, and I saw him, um, and this was before he married his wife. Um, I, I was already married, and I, he, was, he was working on his car out in front of his mom and dad's home, and I uh, turned the car around, went around the block, turned the car around, and I pulled up and I went over and started talking to him. He's like, Hey man, where you been? What have you, what have you been doing? And I hadn't been doing anything worth telling him about or anything that I was proud of. So, you know, I was just, you know, I've just been around I've been hanging out struggling. And he, he knew me well enough to know that, you know, I was using, um, I probably wasn't working and I wasn't. Um, but we were talking for a minute and he was, working on this old Nova. He loved his Novas and he was working on it. And um, when uh, we were done talking, it got a little awkward for a minute and things like that. And this attic, and I, I, I was driving around for hours trying to find drugs. I knew where I knew where to get drugs. I needed money to get them though. And then and the amount of people that had given me drugs that I had owed for or what have you, uh, they weren't giving me anything for free anymore because they knew my story. And uh, I knew from 10 years past that just inside his mom and dad's home and up the stairs and into their bedroom, there was this great big long glass flute that stood three feet high off of the dresser in the center of their bedroom. And they always put uh, their change and their spare cash and and bills and and the had a great big family seven brothers and sisters they always took a great big trip everybody together and now there were grandkids as well um, and I asked him if I could go in the house and use the restroom and he said sure 
And I went up the stairs and into the bedroom, and I took enough money to buy the dope that I wanted. And I came down, talked with him for a few minutes more, and I was gone. Said I had to leave. I had some things to do. And um, he found out late later on that I did it. His mom and dad were very forgiving. Um, and he was too, but he wasn't going to forget. And he didn't want to see me anymore. And he said he didn't want... He said, he said my stealing from him broke his heart is where our friendship ended. And he said that he never wanted to see me again. And so I haven't. And that's been... 33 years now and um, it's been extremely difficult and painful for me to just accept that truth and that reality even through my sobriety and, and my recovery because if there was anybody that would have been worth going through the rest of my life having as a best friend it would have been that man that's extremely hard losing that relationship because of your addiction Addiction takes so much from us. Um, so we're here at the end of the interview, uh, time-wise. But I'd like to know uh, quickly on um, a quick recap of what recovery um, means to you. At this time, recovery to me means living. And I can remember being dead for years. I can remember being... Uh, a dead man walking for years. Um, I can remember breathing and not smelling anything. I can remember eating all those years and never tasting anything or enjoying what I had. I remember children hugging me and kissing me and laughing and giggling. And they are no more because my children died just like little Stevie died in his young age. So to be sober, to be mentally well, the healthiest that I've been in 56 years, it means living. That's amazing. Living is different for everyone on how it, you know, how they do it. But it found, it sounds like you found it even, even half of, of um, what life is like in recovery. I'd like to thank our guest, uh, Stephen Trenchler, um, for being on our show today. And um, I hope everyone will join us next episode. Until then, have a great day, everyone. Thank you.